Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. Joining me and Kerry tonight to talk about the results and aftermath of the US presidential elections are Dr. Jack Lana, research associate at Cardiff University, a specialist in political psychology and voting behaviour, and for our purposes this evening, a former Fulbright Fellow at the University of Michigan. Hello, Jack. Hello, thanks for having me. Hi. Uh, also, we've got Jane Davidson, the former Assembly Member for Pontypridd and former member of the Welsh Government. And as we've just discovered, a former resident of the US. Hello, Jane. Hello, Matt. So we all sort of know what's happened now, at least uh, depending on whose tweets you've been reading, that it looks like Joe Biden has won with 306 Electoral College votes. Is that what we expected to happen? And is the result itself, in terms of results in individual states, what we expected to happen? Or is it a slight surprise? Uh, well, I think it's definitely the expected result in terms of uh, if you were just kind of looking at it in terms of a win-loss, then the person who everyone thought would win won. It's also a pretty comfortable win, really, if you actually look at it in terms of you know, electoral courage uh, and in terms of the popular vote. But I think where some people were very surprised were some of these individual states, especially, I think, places like Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, where kind of pre-election polls gave Biden, you know, kind of 10-point lead. And then, for example, in Wisconsin, his lead ended up being less than one point on the night. And that combined with, I think, how the votes ended up coming in over the few days. You know, people often say the narratives of an election are kind of defined really within the first hour or two of coverage of the news. And I think that was definitely the case this time, where uh, I think for a lot of people, they thought it was actually a lot more closer than it really was. But if you were kind of one of these people who was always watching the polls, you know, clicking refresh on the 538 election page every 10 minutes, then I think you probably would have uh, been uh, slightly surprised. It would have been slightly um, less comfortable than you might have thought for Biden. Yeah. Jane, were you surprised by the overall results? I actually was just crossing every part of my body, fingers, toes, everything, in the hope that Joe Biden would win. But I think that having sat up through the whole of the 2016 election, I just didn't feel that I had enough knowledge uh, to actually make a solid prediction. Although what was really interesting was looking at what they, I think they call the, 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 the bet spread, because there was a whole range of different predicted results, some of them going very high for Joe Biden. But actually, if you take the overarching spread, uh, the result that we have now, um, even if President uh, Trump has not confirmed it, is a result that fits very well within that sort of bet spread. And I think what was really interesting in terms of the, the night itself is that we knew beforehand that President Trump's votes would come in early. And it was clearly his strategy in the context of hoping to have enough votes in early to be able to call the election in his favor. And of course, we saw him doing exactly that. And we knew that the Biden votes would come in later not least because the states all have very, very different types of arrangements in terms of how you can vote. And the Democrats encourage people to use in mail-in votes and the Republicans encourage people to go to the polling station. And it was just really interesting that at sort of every level, the way the parties operated, whether it was process or content, was entirely different in this election. You mentioned the bet spread in there, Jane, and at three o'clock in the morning on our all-nighter, I was Joe Biden had gone out to one to four, 
I was so close to putting money on a quite a big bet on at that at that amount. Jack, what what were those key trends in the election which Jane mentioned about the, the Biden votes coming in later? Can you talk us through some of those? Yeah, sure. So um, much like elections in the UK, you know, you can vote in lots of different ways, right? So you can uh, order a postal vote, which is what a lot of people do. But a lot of states also have this thing where um, it's early voting. So you can actually vote in the election uh, you know, several weeks before actual polling day. Um, and for a lot of people, this is it's actually a really good idea, right? Because uh, say if you're in um, precarious work or you have uh, work long hours in the daytime, you might not actually be able to get to the polls on the day especially in some of these states where voting closes at 7 or 8 p.m. You know, a lot of people are actually still in work at that time in the U.S. So what you saw is the kinds of people who are using these opportunities uh, were also the kind of people who tended to vote for Democrat. Now, on the night, this caused a lot of confusion because in some states, they count these votes first, like uh, Ohio, for example, and, and Texas, which is why on the night of the election, it looked like the Democrats were actually doing very well in Ohio and Texas in early on, because they counted all these early votes, which tend to go, uh, tend to be Democrats. Whereas other states, like for example, Pennsylvania, uh, Michigan, uh, they count them last at the end, they count on the day votes first. So that's kind of this big divide. And that's really what, uh, as, as Jane was saying, you know, um, we knew this was going to happen for several weeks, even months beforehand. Uh, there's a great video of actually Bernie Sanders uh, being interviewed by one of the late night hosts, yes. I can't remember, and saying uh, you know, months and months ago and predicting exactly what would happen you know, happening in that in some states, Trump would run, run up kind of a big tally and would look like he was doing really well. And he'd call the election very early and very quick. So that seems to be a big, uh, you know, one of the big talking points and what's really driven the narrative of this whole election again, even though as, you know, it's been uh, talked about for months in advance uh, when it actually happens on election night, even then, you know, even some of the networks weren't necessarily uh, being responsible with that information, we might say, and whipping up uh, some uh, rather, <laughs> whipping up some emotions. But it, what's interesting, Jack, isn't it, is in some states you can vote early and change your vote. Yes, as yeah, well. So yeah. you've got to, and and also the fact that um, what feeds into this sort of fake news and 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 disinformation, misinformation, is that states adjacent to each other could have entirely different voting rules. So it's a, there's a real sort of challenge to democracy um, in the way that this whole election uh, is conducted, and it's almost a challenge in a way to the American Constitution, because I don't think the American Constitution predicted Donald Trump. The American system, the Constitution, was essentially, is essentially dependent on an, on an honour code, you know? It isn't written down, or, or rather, you, you have this bizarre period where uh, a president will lose an election, and then they have this, what's often called yeah. this lame duck term of, you know, uh, a couple of months where they actually can't really do anything and they're not out of office yet. And that, the assumption has always been that someone, you know, the president will be an honourable person, um, or of course, as it was written at the time, an honourable man is the mm -hmm. assumption. Uh, and then, as soon as you get to someone who isn't particularly honourable, uh, there aren't these particular. You know, it's not a particularly great system at dealing with the, those kind of things. You mentioned that challenge to democracy, then, Jane. I think that we're in a bit of a place where that might be emerging. Do Do you think Trump will leave the White House willingly, or do you think there's going to be a further challenge? I think that we've already kind of entered the realms of fiction, really, in terms of a president who hasn't 
done the honourable thing, just taking that theme of honour forward, uh, and conceded the election. And there has been a precedent. I mean, 200 years ago, there was a president who wasn't prepared to leave the White House when, 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 he, was, when he was rejected by the public. But I, you know, my feeling is, is that the support from the Republican Party, which at the end of the day needs to be seen as a worthy democratic leader in Republican politics, will evaporate. We're seeing it evaporate already in the sense that um, some key individuals, and there's a few more every few days, uh, have conceded the election. So I, I, I do think that um, President Trump will go, but he will go with a bang, not a whimper. I, we just don't know what that bang is going to be. I understand that he's going to try and pardon himself. Well, of course, that would be quite a bang in advance of becoming a, uh, his role as non-president, which then enables uh, those people who want to take court cases against him to proceed. But I think that the, the system is too important for too many people. Because remember that although this was the highest vote that they've seen in a presidential election, it's still lower than a vote for a general election in the UK because we tend to get votes that are 75% or so of, of uh, uh, eligible voters vote. And I think this was 67% or thereabouts. For us, it looked like a low vote, which actually still meant that there were somewhere in the region of 33, 34% of people who didn't vote at all, but would probably want the rule of law and democracy safeguarded. So it is still going to be a, a smaller proportion of people who will be prepared to support this particular president to the bitter end, I think. Uh, I think he probably will end up leaving, even if he never actually publicly concedes. But I think the issue is that, you know, we talked about this kind of lame duck period, but actually one of the things that should go on in these lame duck period is uh, this big crossover of, uh, you know, staff. So, uh, for example, something that normally happens is around now, the president-elect starts getting the uh, like classified security briefings and stuff like that but that doesn't happen until the sitting president gives the say so mm. so if for example if trump just says no he's not going to you know biden we're not going to share any information with him until the you know the day i leave that puts the incoming administration you know on the back foot when they actually get there then so they're you know months and months behind because you know still four years into the trump presidency he still uh, only filled 60 percent of the uh, you know, kind of uh, government appointees that he should have done. The US government is this massive, massive uh, bureaucratic machine that, you know, requires, you know, tens of thousands of, uh, you know, people working around the clock all the time. So if you're on the back foot when you're coming in, it delays, you know, anything you can do. Uh, and, you know, US presidents already really realistically have a very short period of time to do stuff because, of course, halfway through their four-year term, there's the midterm elections, they're called. So that's where uh, senators and representatives are elected and so you have to focus on that as well so it really shortens the period of time where Biden can do anything really um, I, I think I think that's the that's a big concern. What do we know about the voters for each of the candidates what is the makeup of these different voters because this is I think the first and second highest popular vote for an individual candidate in history? Yeah yeah uh, well mo the motivation is a really interesting one because uh, more and more, so we talk a lot about polarization, right, and what that means. Uh, and, ba and basically what we talk about is kind of this social sorting 
Right. So all of us, we belong to lots of different groups. We identify in lots of different ways. Sometimes these identities are very important to us. Sometimes they're not. Right? But what seems to have happened over the last, well, it's been accelerating over the last 20 years, but uh, it's really, really sped up in the last sort of decade in the US in particular, is that all these different identity groups are becoming more and more aligned under these political labels, so Democrat and Republican. So for example, whereas maybe in the, uh, let's say, late 70s, evangelicals, this really big, important group uh, in the US, white evangelicals in particular, uh, they may have been split, you know, 60-40. So 60% would have voted for Republicans, 40% might have voted for Democrats. But now what we're seeing is, you know, that group is almost entirely uh, votes for the Republicans. So now, when we're talking about motivations, you know, uh, elections actually take on a lot more um, cost for you because when you lose an election, so if you're a Republican, when you lose an election, it's not just Republicans that are losing the election, it's your faith group that's losing the election. It tends to be your area that's losing your, uh, you know, it could be your social class, it could be your, uh, you know, your um, ethnic identity. So over the last few years, these have taken on, you know, elections take on a lot more cost for people. Um, or are they perceived to be, as people are more finely sorted into these two groups. You also see that in the, U in the UK, by the way, um, there's been particular sorting under this uh, you know, kind of leave and remain, which is why they've been so powerful. Right? Um, they tap into these identity sorting more than, say, traditional political party identities. Um, so that's a really big thing we've seen. So we've heard a lot about kind of which groups vote which way. In the US, how this is often talked about is in terms of race, right? Because uh, race is often seen rightly as a predominant like cleavage, so the predominant social political divide uh, in the US historically throughout its history. Um, and you tend to see, and this is again, it's tend, you, you, you do have a lot of variation diversity within all of these groups, of course. You tend to see ethnic minorities uh, voting for the Democrats and uh, kind of white. Uh, basically white people as, a, as a, a group tend to vote Republican. But of course, within that, you've got lots of variation, you know, within uh, white groups, you have college educated voters who tend to be more Democrat. Uh, you have uh, white working class voters who tend to be more uh, Republican. You know, depending on how many times you want to divide up a, group, uh, a population, you can say which way they go. Uh, another one in terms of partisan polarization would be African-Americans or black people in the US, they tend to be you know, around, I think it's high 80%, around 90% to vote Democrat. Again, it's, it's important to uh, kind of stress that I think partisanship can often mask a lot of ideological variation in a group. Uh, like you do get lots of uh, very conservative um, uh, black people in the US, uh, but they vote for Democrat for a whole host of reasons, for example. Um, so those are kind of the two big groups. I suppose in this election, the big talking point was this growing group in the US, the Hispanic population. And there was a lot of talk about, especially in Florida, uh, where maybe we might talk about this later, but it's quite unique circumstances. But that Hispanic group, which the Democrats really kind of banked on, didn't come out uh, for them, basically. And in fact, they, were, they uh, swayed heavily uh, to the Republican Party. So I think this is uh, it's a good point that it highlights this kind of uh, political diversity within these groups, even though we often talk about them as these uh, homogenous blocks of voters. There's um, a couple of other points I'd like to add to that. Um, if you own a gun, 
And of course, a lot of Americans own a gun. You're probably a Trump supporter. And if you um, live in the country, as opposed to the city, you are far more likely to be a Trump supporter. Although there are some particular states and Vermont and Bernie Sanders is a, uh, has, has demonstrated you can actually break through that in terms of your politics because Vermont is a small, a small state and, uh, and with very, very active politicians, you can change the frame. And I think the other really interesting group in this is that um, Trump did something very clever with his tax cuts in the context of those people um, who were middle income Americans, but were actually by the tax cuts enabled to be slightly higher income than they would otherwise have been. And they came out for Trump as well. So there was just some real, you know, there's some, there's some niche elements, I think, as well, aren't there, Jack? Yeah, absolutely. You know, another big group we didn't talk about was women. And that was yeah. actually a really big surprise in 2016 is that white women, a majority of them, voted for Trump. Yeah. And that was a big surprise given, um, well, what he himself has been caught saying uh, and you know, how many accusations of sexual misconduct there are against him, sexual abuse there are against him, you know, really serious things. That seemed to change this time among uh, college-educated white women this time a uh, majority of which voted uh, Democrat. But, um, and there also seems to be, from some of the exit polls, there seemed to be quite an interesting divide between, uh, among the Hispanic group between uh, men and women as well, mm -hmm. uh, where women were uh, far more likely to vote Democrat than men in that group. So, so in, in all these you know, things, you can drill down and find these really interesting divisions. How worrying do you, do you find these reports of polarization I suppose it's not only polarization in America, but polarization here in the UK and in Wales too. Does what Jack say about, you know, groups being so polarized one way or another worry you? Well, I think, I think we saw this play out in Wales big time in terms of the Brexit referendum. You know, we all probably watched the Channel 4 news the night before the vote and the man from Ebu Vale you know, who stood in front of the railway, the hospital, the college, the school, and said, Europe's never done anything for us. And just that sort of complete dislocation in the context of understanding the relationship with Europe and not in any way feeling that governments of any political persuasion had done anything to support jobs um, for him and his, uh, and his family. And I do, it was a fun, kind of extraordinary wake-up call for me um, that actually you can do a lot of things where you hope you're making uh, some pretty hard lives a little better. But actually, I feel that in many ways you almost need a bit more polarisation in, in politics now to actually con completely define what the political offer is. And this election was very, very clear in terms of the political offers. Just for example, if we look at climate change, um, if we look at the US trade deal, which we'll come on to in a moment, a completely different offer from each of the people at the election. So what in some ways looks like polarization is also in some cases the very reason that people join a tribe, they join a political party because they offer very, very different views of the world. They offer different value frameworks. So I don't think it's, I don't think polarization in itself 
is a problem. I'm much, much more concerned about whether part of that polarisation is something that we're seeing a lot of in the UK at the moment, that I still call old-fashioned corruption, that sort of nepotism, that chumocracy, which is driving a lot of money into a very small number of hands. And as somebody who, who entered politics in terms of wanting to, you know, actually I entered politics to both encourage more youth work and better housing. <laughs> Those were two things that drove me into politics in the first place back in 1983. And um, anybody who's listening to this who is at all political will therefore understand that I joined the Labour Party on Michael Foote's manifesto, which was called the longest suicide note in history. And I still like that manifesto today. So I think there is a, it's the values framework you buy into. It's what your person that you're voting for will do to improve either the quality of your own life or the quality of your community. And there are different views as to whether or not you do it for your own um, uh, in your own life, or I've always, personally, I've always voted on who will redistribute more, who will tackle the problems of the world more, and who will not put money into the hands of the richest. I, I have a good anecdote, if you don't, if you don't mind uh, saying. So something Jane was talking about there, about polarisation is not always necessarily a bad thing. So in the, in the 1960s in the US, uh, the uh, American Political Science Association, I think it was, uh, which is the professional body of people studying politics, like academics who study politics in the US, they got together and they wrote this uh, very, they wrote this big note basically to Congress. And what they were arguing for was that the political parties should, should instill more political polarization in the US system. And the reason this was, they were saying that because, um, for example, if you take the Democratic Party in the South, in the southern states in the 1960s, right? They were very, very different yeah. to Democratic, the Democratic Party in the North. So you might have a Republic, so you'd probably say that, you know, Republican uh, candidates from politicians and party platforms in the North were far more progressive uh, than the Democratic Party in the South, right? And this is obviously uh, the big thing about this was uh, segregation, racial segregation. Mm. And because of this, uh, the APSA argued, right, it was confusing to voters as to which party stood for what, because in different parts of the, uh, in different parts of the country, the party was saying different things, completely different things. You still get that a little bit now, you know, these massive kind of broad church uh, uh, parties. But yeah, so in the 1960s, uh, you know, academics are actually saying there should be far more polarisation to help democracy. So it'd be far better. So I always enjoyed that one. <laughs> I think that's what we call a clear red water moment <laughs> in the context of Wales. <laughs> so I think a lot of us were quite aghast, really, that Trump looked like at one point he was going to win. Why do you think so many people still felt so compelled to vote for Trump? You know, he got more votes this time than he did last time. I think, remember that more people voted for Biden. I think we have to, we have to be clear about that. I think that this election, because the two candidates, they might look the same, as in two men over 70s, one with very, very long political experience, one with long business experience, um, putting themselves up. So if, the, if a Martian entered the room, they would see very little difference in terms of just a portrait of the two men. But the offer 
was entirely different. I mean, if you just think that what Joe Biden said uh, in terms of being president-elect, you know, that he is going to tackle on day one, he is going to tackle climate change. He is going to take action in the, con in the, in the context of racial equity, and he's going to take action on COVID. So diametrically opposed platforms, as they call them in, in, in America, rather than manifestos. Now that means that it's very easy for you to pick your tribe, because effectively the uh, independent vote in this election, which is always absolutely tiny in America anyway, it fell away completely. So your tribe was one or the other. And I think that that's, that, so it did become a very easy uh, election in, 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 in that way. And I think that what was also a very big difference in terms of 2016 was I was really shocked um, because um, some of my family went over to work for Hillary Clinton uh, in Philadelphia uh, during the 2016 election. And I was shocked because they were shocked at the level of hatred there was for Hillary Clinton. And I, we just had no idea of that from, from the kind of UK perspective, uh, that this was real and it was visceral. And you had Bernie Sanders supporters who were never, ever going to vote for Hillary Clinton. Now, this election was not like that. Um, and Bernie Sanders himself was absolutely clear that his voters should very strongly vote for Joe Biden. And we don't think we saw, unless, unless uh, you have other knowledge, but I don't think we saw in any way people not voting this time if they were interested in the politics. So we saw a direct competition between two people offering entirely different offers to the American people. I think it's probably, it was make America great again with very little behind that saying and make America sane again. <laughs> which actually more people bought into. Because, of course, Joe Biden's vote this time was the highest in US electoral history. I, I suppose you've got to think of it as, you know, we're talking about, as we've been talking about this polarisation, there are this, just this big chunk of voters uh, on either side who they're never going to switch. It, it almost doesn't really matter who the candidate is, because as we've talked about, you know, it's so much more than your political identity now. It's kind of, is, is everything you know everything you, you live your life around um so there is that big chunk i suppose the other thing i'd say is that one one way so historically one of the ways in which you have a pretty good idea who will win uh, a, a presidential election is that you just you literally just look at the economy um, right so if the economy has been growing it normally means the incumbent's going to win and so, so it kind of in a, if you look at it in the post-war period there's only been one instance where that hasn't happened and I suppose for a lot of people, so in the US, you know, the, you know, the economy, when you say the economy is working, it's obviously not working for millions and millions of people. But in terms of just the numbers, you know, employment was at record highs. The, everything was kind of going up in the direction which, uh, you know, economists like to think is, is a good thing. Uh, and it was only really the coronavirus which really stopped that. And there might be a, some, you know, some people might be thinking, oh, well, that's, you know, nothing you can do about that. Is there, you know, it's not his fault, kind of thing. There's also this idea, I think, that you know, you know, because of this polarization uh, and because of uh, how we receive our news and information about politics now, people who voted Trump last time are likely to be uh, consuming a completely different set of you know, information, uh, news, media, than people who voted for Clinton. 
And so they're not actually, they're, you know, they're probably not getting this coverage that we tend to get more internationally where, oh, isn't, isn't Trump, isn't Trump a buffoon, isn't he awful? Uh, they're not seeing that kind of stuff. You know, the most watched, for example, the most watched TV program in the US is not, you know, any sitcom or reality thing. It's uh, Tucker Carlson on Fox News who, you know, I'm not sure if uh, people will be familiar, but, you know, and, and it doesn't really go beyond being uh, impartial to say, like, he's a horrific right-wing bigot and racist. You know, every, every night, uh, it's, it's really, really not even kind of dog whistles. It's like loud racist shouting, basically. And every night, 15 million people on average are watching that. So it goes beyond just, you know, that, that people are going to be getting completely different information about each campaign party as well. And I think that's a big thing to take, uh, take into account. And going back to, interestingly, again, what Jane was saying about Hillary Clinton, there's some really fascinating research. Uh, Stuart Soroka, who is at Michigan, so obviously I would find it particularly interesting. But in the last campaign, he, he did this uh, very cool uh, piece of research with Gallup, which is uh, uh, one of the largest kind of public opinion companies in the world. And they asked people just every day in the run-up to the election, what have you heard about the candidate? What have you heard about Trump? What have you heard about Hillary? And uh, people could say whatever they want. It wasn't just it wasn't just you know one of these ones where you have to tick a box. They say whatever you want. And what came out of that was that uh, everybody, whether they liked Trump or not, knew exactly what Trump's campaign promises were about. Right? It was build the wall, make America great again. Basically, those are, those are those are the things. For Hillary, nobody knew. There was no one message, or even two messages or campaigns that really uh, you know cut through. Whereas this time, what Biden did, or rather what the people around Biden did, which was smart, was they really made it all about getting Trump out. Mm. Uh, he talked about decency and there were these big things about, you know, a Green New Deal and everything. But really, the consistent message was we just need to get this guy out. And that was a message. And they really tapped into what we call this negative partisanship, where it's not you don't vote for Biden because you like him. You vote for Biden because you're voting against the other person and you hate the other person. So from that point of view, tapping into those emotions, very smart. So I think that's why Biden probably came away with it in the end. And just, just a final thing, incumbents very rarely lose in the US. Mm -hmm. It happens very, very rarely. I, I suppose in recent memory, the only people who have actually lost as incumbents would be Jimmy Carter and uh, George H.W. Bush. I know Gerald Ford lost, but he actually never, you know, he never won an election, so he doesn't really count. Um, so it's very, very rare that incumbents lose as well, because I think for a lot of Americans, uh, you know, I suppose they might think better the devil you know. So, Jane, I think you you touched on um, the future with Biden, the really good, the good things that he's already announced on day one. I think he said Paris Accords back on the agenda, first thing, uh, the World Health Organization. Like, what do you both see as the, the near future for both both uh, Trump and Biden, really. Do you, are you expecting Trump to do anything in his last couple of months? And then what do you see those kind of like early months of the Biden uh, era to be like? I think in terms of the early months of the, of the Biden era, obviously what happens in Georgia in terms of the Senate is going to be absolutely critical. And we've got the runoff for two, for two Senate seats uh, in January. And there is an entirely different presidency in underway if you have, even if you don't have control of the Senate, if you had an equal number in the Senate, of course, it's the vice president who has the casting vote. 
So it would mean that Kamala Harris had the casting, a casting vote. And so that's critically important. And we've seen, we, we actually had seen an increasing um, number of presidents who have not controlled uh, the Senate. And therefore you have to do everything by executive order. So I think we'll see a very, very, very busy few months because that will be Biden hitting the ground running on the agendas that he won on. And that those agendas are very clearly action on COVID, on climate change and on um, racial equality. So those areas will be right at the top of the agenda. And I think that the extraordinary thing about doing that at this time in a year where we've seen the Black Lives Matter issues um, spread out across the world, where we've seen the COVID issue across the world, and where we know that climate change is the biggest threat that we have facing us, that actually he will not only tune into his American support, but he actually generates world support in the context of um, those issues from the liberal democracies. And I think that's really important in terms of how he will become a much more multinational negotiator and looking again to put America in the driving seat in the context of climate change. Um, because of course, through Todd Stern, uh, America always was previously in the driving, driving seat over that. So that we have a real opportunity here whereby the rejoining of the Paris Agreement, the eight phone calls he's had with world leaders so far have all been about commitments to climate change, um, uh, conduct, conducted up until Friday. And therefore, those very strong messages about being an internationalist will actually um, engage him in a very different set of countries to the countries that uh, Trump is engaged in. And in my view, that makes the world a safer place. I think what's really important in our context here is that the Biden election, when the, uh, the Johnson Conservative Party seemed to be banking on a Trump election, <laughs> the Biden election just changes the politics in terms of those two key issues, Brexit and uh, in the context of climate change. Because uh, if we just take climate change for the moment, because I think we'll want to come back to the Brexit issue. Yeah, but if we, in the context of climate change, we're now in a situation whereby we know the Biden phone call talked about climate change. Britain is hosting uh, COP26 in Glasgow um, uh, in November of next year. So far, the Conservative Party and its manifesto for Johnson's own election has not been ambitious on these issues. But it may well be that in order to engage with Joe Biden over a US trade deal, that the Johnson administration is going to have to do substantially more on both climate change and on Brexit. Well, I imagine Trump will try and make things as hard as possible by gutting out some government departments. Uh, he's already <laughs> fired a, a fair few people. I think he'll be limited in what he can actually do beyond that kind of general disruption. Biden, it'll have to be, you know, he'll have to get moving very, very fast because the midterms coming up in 2022, uh, it's possible that Democrats might even lose control of the House there. So any of these uh, kind of big spending policies, especially, so this Green New Deal stuff, that would need to be 
take place immediately. Mm. So we saw that what happened with Obama. Obama made this very big mistake, basically, of spending the first two years trying to reach across the aisle, as they call it, working with Republicans, you know, trying to reach this consensus. They refused the whole t- time. And then within two years, he lost control of uh, Congress and never really could do any of these, uh, uh, you know, these really big, ambitious things. So I suppose the key is, like Jane says, what happens in the Senate, but mostly for Biden, it should be push on. Don't really, you know, don't really care what the Republicans say, probably. Jane, Jane mentioned Brexit and obviously the Biden position will change the kind of the US position towards Britain and Brexit. What is your take on what a Biden victory means for the UK and the big ticket items we, we talk about? Brexit, Good Friday Agreement. How do you think Biden administration will deal with that i think the biggest thing will be on the tone um you know, just just because uh biden's previously uh well previously referred to uh, boris johnson in some unsavory terms i think and uh generally hasn't thought uh brexit was a big thing also biden is quite keen to play up his irish heritage um so matters around the good friday agreement in particular i think he'd be very sensitive to I actually don't think that will be particularly different as what happened under Trump, because even though Trump himself was, you know, always talking up what a big fan he was of Brexit and stuff, you forget that you know, just how many uh, uh, U.S. politicians claim Irish heritage, and that's a very big, important part of them. So, in general, I think any kind of messing around with the Good Friday Agreement is always going to be very difficult uh, when seeking a trade deal with the U.S. Um, but yeah, mostly I think it's it, it'll be the kind of the tone setting uh, that happens, and 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 that will maybe cause some uh, uh, pause for thought amongst uh, MPs in particular. Yeah, you see, I, it, it, this is really interesting because I I um, was looking back at um, uh, one of Biden's first tweets uh, once he became president-elect, and he said. We can't allow the Good Friday Agreement that brought peace to Northern Ireland to become a casualty of Brexit. Any trade deal between the US and UK must be contingent upon respect for the agreement and preventing the return of a hard border, full stop, period, full stop. So that's that's very confrontational in the context of a message to um, uh, the UK Prime Minister when what's been pretty obvious to me, and uh, this may be because of my fears in this context, but it feels what's been pretty obvious to me is actually the UK government has been trying under the cover of COVID to just get a no deal Brexit. They call it an Australia deal, which is an absolute nonsense because it isn't an Australia deal, that's world trade. But they've been just moving towards a no deal, that's it. And they were almost there when Biden got elected. And I just feel that there's just been a bit of backpedaling in the last few days in terms of saying that they really are trying their best to get a deal. I'm not sure they will be able to, but I think that what they do not want to do, because they will have no friends in either America or Europe, is actually having admitted that they'll be breaking an international treaty, they do not want to have to pass the Internal Markets Bill. And that's why it's not coming back to the House until late in December anyway. They really don't want to do that. And of course, it's a position they put themselves in, because if they hadn't um, you know, tried, to, tried to work uh, in the context with 
those, those people who wanted to see a, a united Ireland and honour the Good Friday Agreement and said we wouldn't have a border there. And then it was actually Boris Johnson himself who suggested <laughs> that there should be a border in the Irish Sea. And of course, the Unionists then felt that they were being divorced from the United Kingdom. So in a sense, this is all of their own making, but unpick it, it is going to have global consequences. And I think the biggest global consequence is the fact that you cannot engage with other countries by breaking treaties. So they need to find a way not to break the Treaty of the Withdrawal Agreement. So they, I, I would imagine that we'll have a tiny, tiny deal uh, by the end of December that will allow some movement and enable the UK still to say that it's got its borders back, um, but actually will enable the, with the Internal Markets Bill, which not only causes problems in terms of relationships with other countries, but of course causes problems here in Wales too. Potentially we lose all our environmental powers in Wales, our agricultural powers in Wales under that bill too. And there are already impacts in the context of Scotland and Wales in increasing interest in independence uh, on the back of the way governments have behaved over COVID. So there's a sort of moment, and politics is all about moments, <laughs> the events. There is a moment at the moment which is going to involve a lot of very careful navigation. And if there can be the smallest possible change for the largest possible outcome, I expect that the UK government is going to be scrabbling for that at the moment. So they can hold their head up with Joe Biden and they can also hold their head up in the context of the UK and they've not damaged completely relationships with Europe. Jane and Jack, thank you so much for coming on. Before we end completely, Jane, you've got a, you've got a book out at the moment. I have. Uh, would you like to tell everybody who's listening a little bit about that? It's called Future Gen, Lessons from a Small Country. Wales is the only country in the world that has put legislation in place to deliver sustainable development goals. It is the only country in the world that has put legislation in place to deliver uh, sustainable development for future generations. I'm very proud of the fact that Wales has done that. And I was delighted when I was approached earlier this year to write the story as the person who proposed the legislation but not the person who took the legislation through. It was the next generation of politicians who took that through. And I take my hat off to them because they've made Wales very special. And Wales's commitment to look after future generations uh, is an absolutely solid leadership commitment. The story is in Future Gen with 140 voices, including Michael Sheens and many others, uh, who talk about the kind of Wales they want to see as a result of having uh, that legislation in place. Thank you very much, Jane. If people want to get hold of you on Twitter, uh, where's the best place to do so, Jane? I'm at Jane Bringwin, and I have a website which is janedavidson.wales. Thank you very much. And Jack, where's the best place to get hold of you? Uh, yeah, Twitter. So it's just uh, at Jack Lana. So that's Jack without a K. So J A C Lana. Thank you both very much. If you like what you've heard tonight, please don't forget to find us on Medium at Here I Plug Cymru on Facebook at Heroes Blog Cymru and on Twitter at Heroes Blog. Thank you for listening to Heroes. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review.